You're listening where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Every week, the theme music tells us of the Confederate victory at Shiloh. This week, we'll find out what really happened. Our guest is Gary D. Joyner, co-editor with Timothy B. Smith of a remarkable, newly published book that was written 40 years ago. Join us to learn about this new, old account of the Battle of Shiloh on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But speaking just for myself, my guest speaks for him. The university goes about its business now for the 100th year, the centennial year 2007, of East Carolina University, far too busy to bother engaging litigation for anything I might do or say allegedly on its behalf today or any day on Civil War Talk Radio. And as always, to start the show, I want to thank all listeners who have contributed with ideas or suggestions or monetary contributions to the show. All are welcome. Uh, If you send a donation to the show in the next month or two, I'll be happy to send you a copy of All for the Regiment uh, my book on the Army of the Ohio, 1861 to 1862, including its performance at Shiloh, the subject of our program today. And if you uh, do that now, it's a good idea. You'll get a nice hardback first edition of All for the Regiment. And if you wait too long, I'm, I'll eventually get into print. The book we've discussed here before with the tentative title, Did Lincoln Own Slaves? A book of questions and answers about Abraham Lincoln. That looks like it's coming out in paperback, so if you want to get a nice hardback book uh, for a donation bonus, uh, send something here to help us buy more books for the Civil War Talk Radio Library, and uh, that's what you'll get. Well, our guest today is Gary D. Joyner, uh, editor, uh, co-editor, along with uh, Tim Smith, of a, a new old book about Shiloh in the Western Campaign of 1862. Gary, are you there? I am here. 
Well, it's nice to talk to you. I, I don't know that you and I have met before, but I sure appreciate you joining us on Civil War Talk Radio. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Actually, uh, I'm at a conference, and so I got to, to sneak away to, to do this. It's a lot more fun. Well, tell, what kind of conference are you attending? Uh, Louisiana Historical Association is meeting, and so uh, I presented this morning and um, skipping a couple of sessions so I can I can be with you and your listeners. Well, wonderful. What was your paper on? Uh, I did a uh, another book last year on a Louisiana soldier named William Henry King, and uh, the the diary that uh, was discovered uh, literally by accident. Uh, the Texas State Archives languished there for decades, and no one was able to figure out who this man was. And there was a hold on it until the family um, gave permission to publish. And once we cracked the code of who he was, uh, we proceeded with it. It's a fascinating, fascinating guy. He was a private through most of the war, never fired a shot in anger, uh, but he is uh, a, a great chronicler. Uh, very, very interesting man, uh, very opinionated, uh, very well-read, and uh, I've never read a, another diary like it. Uh, really? And is this going to be published, you say? It, it's already out by the University of Tennessee Press. Okay. And where did he serve? Uh, he served in Louisiana and briefly in Arkansas. Uh, he was part of uh, the Army of Western Louisiana, uh, mostly engaged with... Uh, the Louisiana 28th uh, Infantry Regiment. Uh, he spent some time on Kirby Smith's staff, and he spent the end of the war, the last several months of the war, as a pontoneer uh, with the 4th Confederate Engineers. Interesting. So, uh, and what's the title of that book? Uh, no Pardons to Ask Nor Apologies to Make. Very good. Well, our listeners may want to check that out. It sounds interesting. Now, you were able to give a paper on this, and yet neither race nor class nor gender is in the title of your uh, subject. Isn't it amazing? How did that happen? Uh, dumb luck. <laughs> <laughs> the, the panel actually was on uh, Union occupation in various parts of Louisiana, and William Henry King was captured. He almost got into a battle at, at uh, the Battle of Fort Bisland. However, he had a health problem, was sitting in a house, with a handful of other men who were also sick, and the Confederates evacuated uh, and didn't take them, and so he was captured and spent uh, quite a little bit of time in the Belleville Foundry in Algiers opposite New Orleans before he was exchanged. Hmm. And so he, uh, he he fits into that uh, particular panel. But uh, we, we, we tend to, to be more traditional in our panels. We, we don't... Uh, water the subjects down. Uh, well, that, that's good. I, if you go to some of the national conventions, uh, you know, you can go to the, uh, the OAH and, and oh, yeah. just see page after page of, of panels all on the same yes. currently hot interpretive paradigms. Yes. And, Gender studies and, and are, not, are the, the, what I really do not like is the so-called new military history. I, I'm a conservative, traditional Civil War historian, and I tend to, to like to do biographies and talk about uh, campaigns and their effects on people, um, not so much about what were the people at home thinking while the men were fighting. Well, we, 
this subject came up not long ago on the show. We were discussing the new military history. Uh, Ethan Refuse was on. Oh, yes. Uh, Ray Fuse. And, and he... Fine scholar. Fine scholar. And he's written some really interesting stuff. I was very impressed with his, his book on Bull Run. Yes. And... There was some reference into the new military history. First of all, I think it's older, possibly, than you or me, but uh, certainly older than any students uh, we would encounter. So it's not really new anymore. It's been going since no, the mid-60s. But it's it's newer than the 1870s to 1900, when the, the first wave of of biographies and unit histories were written. And and it does have its place. I'm not belittling it, but I tend to think that the actions are more important than um, just the, the the recollections. Not necessarily the impact, which is very very important on home life uh, in the rear areas. But I don't think that you should subvert the telling of the story to interpretation of second and third parties. Well, I'm I'm going to come back and, and ask you about this later in the show uh, to give you a preview kind of question that interests me. Uh, did Ruggles have 52 guns or 62 guns in line facing the I think the we can answer it. And, and I'm, the question I'll let you think about before I ask it is, why the heck does anyone care? Yeah. But, but hold on to that for a minute. All right. Um, uh, tell me a bit about yourself. What, what is your background? Uh, well, I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor of history at Louisiana State University in Shreveport. I run the Red River Regional Studies Center at LSUS. Uh, I hold a bachelor's and master's from Louisiana Tech University and a Ph.D. from Lancaster University in England. Interesting. Uh, where I... Uh, believe it or not, uh, got to work with two very fine uh, American Civil War experts who were Brits, and uh, and and worked on some Trans Mississippi issues. Interesting. Is uh, is William Peterson at your school? Yes, he is. How is Bill He's doing? Teaching in my department. Wonderful. I, uh, Dear friend. He's, uh, along with Frank Williams and others, sponsored uh, Lincoln conferences. Oh yes. Yeah. Which makes your place the first in the Deep South to uh, uh, to to have these kind of events centered around Abraham Lincoln. Very true. As a matter of fact, uh, I my office is on the fourth floor, Bronson Hall. Bill is on the third floor, and uh, right opposite his office is what we uh, generally refer to as the Lincoln Shrine. Uh, and, and it and Bill does really fine work. He is. Yeah. Um, he is a scholar of the first order. He cares about what he does, and he is a bulldog of a researcher. Yes. Well, let's. Uh, you mentioned this uh, uh, this diary that you found that you said languished in the, the archives in Texas for many years. Yes. And what I mentioned in the introduction, I want to talk uh, about today is the Battle of Shiloh in the Western Campaign of 1862 which is the title of a new book that you and Tim Smith have edited. Yes. But you didn't write it. Uh, no, we didn't. Tell us uh, about this this very interesting manuscript. It is, uh, and, and you can be so close to the trees you can't see the forest and all those cliches, 
But there are very few books that come along, or particularly dissertations, and this was a dissertation uh, done at LSU in Baton Rouge, uh, finished in 1966 by a man named Otis Edward Cunningham, who worked under T. Harry Williams. He was on the Louisiana Civil War Centennial Commission, uh, and he was one of the young rising stars in the 60s. And his dissertation was on Shiloh, but it was much more than that. You don't really even get into the Battle of Shiloh until the seventh chapter. He talks about the Western Campaign. He begins his story uh, with Polk's invasion of Kentucky and then brings it up through Henry and Donaldson and, and on up to Shiloh and then finishes at Corinth. And this was his dissertation. He did publish one book uh, on the Port Hudson campaign, but he never published his dissertation. And uh, Dr. Cunningham died uh, ten years ago. Uh, he he never revisited this this work, and there's why, a lot why of reasons you, for it, I guess. Do you have any idea what those might Why didn't he publish this? Well, he taught at Tulane for a while, and then he taught at University of Tennessee at Martin, and then he got a job with the Department of Defense uh, teaching aboard warships. Mm. And he spent a lot of his time aboard ship, international waters, and he just never did it. His health began to fail, and he never pursued it. And so the dissertation languished at uh, the LSU libraries, and a copy of it was at Shiloh National Military Park, where uh, the historians there have used it uh, since the 60s as a resource. And several years ago, Tim contacted me. Well, we, we, I've known Tim a long time. And he was telling me about this dissertation. He says, something needs to be done with this. And he sent me a few pages of it, and my first thought was, wow, I've... This thing reads like Shelby Foote or Bruce Catton or maybe even Killer Angels. I tend to compare it to to all three types of work. It is a dissertation. It is completely footnoted. We had to make some very minor changes. We had to update his style of citations. We added in a new chapter. I did, I'm also a cartographer, I make maps, and so I did uh, over 30 maps to go with it. We have over 60 illustrations in the text, and we have a gallery of uh, scenes of Shiloh with a map that shows here's where the picture was taken, and here's the direction of the view shed. So it combines a lot of different things. It's a big book. It's about 500 pages. Well, it is. I've got a, a, an advanced copy here that your publisher is kind enough to send along. So it's uh, is it coming out in hardback or paperback? Uh, hardback. Hardback. So I've got a, just a paperback advanced yeah. copy, which is still very handsome. It has the, uh, I think it's the, the painting by Third to Thulstrup on the cover. That's right. It's uh, part of the cyclorama that no longer exists. Yeah, so it's a very, very handsome uh, picture, a nice, nice uh, font for the cover. So it's a very, very attractive book, even in the 
pre-publication format. Uh, and as you say, it's, it's not a short book, but it's not uh, it's not a long read. Uh, no, it reads it, very fast. It reads like a novel. Yes. And the one thing that Dr. Cunningham did that I really like, I think it's the mark of any great literature, is that it he paints word portraits. It's not you drop down troops at point A and you move them to point B and they shoot and then they move to point C. There's none of that. Mm-hmm. When he describes it, it is beautiful, beautiful prose. And uh, we we cut nothing out of it except for a couple of paragraphs that for some reason made no sense in the timeline. And we made a note. Every time that, that either Tim or I did any annotations to it, there is a, uh, a diacritical mark where you can see where his information stops and ours begins, and then we we say that it's us, it's not him. Mm-hmm. And we're explaining what he said, or we update the historiography over the last 41 years. And I, I, I did, as all historians do when you get a book of this nature, the correct and indeed necessary first thing to do is to turn to the bibliography Yes. See if your own work is cited, because if it's not, you don't need to bother with this thing. <laughs> um, but you have had the good sense to include all for the regiment in here. Yes, um, we did. Which uh, which does focus on the, a chapter on Shiloh, so it's not inappropriate. Although you have the, my wrong middle initial, so oh no, so points are taken off for that. Uh, well, we will we will try to have that fixed as soon as possible. If if I, it, so, has this actually appeared in? Has this been produced yet? Uh, it is at the printer. It's at the printer. So, well, next time around, second we'll, edition, we'll fix that that initial. But I, I always uh, appreciate the depth of research that includes uh, all for the regiment. The uh, uh, the question comes to mind. You're, you're giving us very high praise comparing it to uh, Foot or Cat and Michael Shara, and why don't people write dissertations with this kind of style anymore? <laughs> Well, I I have my own personal uh, bias toward that. Uh, I think that they should. A, a dissertation, as you well know, is is your shining moment. It is the point at which you become the most knowledgeable being on your topic, at least for a while. Mm-hmm. And you should be able to really show what you can do. You should be able to shine. And one thing, if you look at the dissertations that were produced under T. Harry Williams at LSU, uh, the vast majority of these are like this because he was a fine author as well as a historian and, and researcher himself, and he wanted that, and that's what was produced. Now it's more filling in check boxes, making sure that you're fine, covering yourself, uh, even though you should have about half analysis and half background, depending on your school. Uh, as, as my major professor, my tutor, as they called him in England, told me, he says, you know, mostly even your nearest and dearest will not read this in its current form. And I said, well, I hope so. And you know, in, indeed, the University of Tennessee Press published my my dissertation. So, with very little little 
um, hacking and cracking, I was able to convert it into a into a book. It came out last year, but and, and, as well. Let, let's book. not miss a, an opportunity. What's the title of that? Uh, Through the Howling Wilderness. Through the Howling Wilderness. Yeah, and it's about the Red River campaign in Louisiana, Arkansas, and Arkansas in 1864. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we'll come back in just a minute and talk more uh, uh, about Cunningham's manuscript and about the Battle of Shiloh itself uh, with our guest today, Gary Joyner, on Civil War Talk Radio. sunken? Did the hornet's nest matter? Did Ruggles get 62 guns in line or 51 guns in line when he fired at that position? And most of all, why should people care about these issues? These are questions for our guest, Gary Joyner, editor of a new book on Shiloh, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small business success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. Smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Gary D. Joyner, co-editor along with Tim Smith, of a new book, Shiloh and the Western Campaign of 1862, originally written by O. Edward Cunningham some 40 years ago, but now seeing the light of day for the first time. We talked about this book, uh, this manuscript in the first segment, how uh, Dr. Cunningham wrote it as his dissertation and how it spent many years uh, in the library of the National Park Service office at Shiloh. Gary, that, that library at Shiloh, is like uh, the the libraries at Stones River and many other national parks, uh, an amazing resource that most people don't know anything about. That's very true. If if you want to write on a battle, you have to go to the battlefield not just to see the terrain, but to see what's been collected. Uh, talk a little bit about what what's at Shiloh as a, as a research location. Okay. Shiloh is, uh, to me, a very atypical national park. When you look at uh, the eastern parks that are threatened, uh, heavily threatened, 
by urban encroachment. Shiloh is so remote that it is perhaps uh, the most uh, idyllic, well-preserved national park in, in, of the Civil War parks. Uh, the landscape is very similar to what it was. The monumentation is excellent. And uh, the research information that they have is, is outstanding. It's on a par with any of the other national park um, system uh, libraries. Not open to the public. Uh, researchers, uh, you know, if you want to go there, you, you you go and you ask permission, and better to get permission before you come, and just start looking through letters and manuscripts and anything that's been written on Shiloh, anything that was gathered when the park was created. Uh, so you have uh, veterans' reminiscences, uh, sometimes just handwritten. Uh, how, how do they know where to put a monument? Well, this is how they knew. They went out and they interviewed people. Uh, there, there were reunions held, of course, uh, at the park. And uh, the, uh, the powers that be uh, kept all of this. And it is truly a national institution. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, it, it really is. I had the opportunity to go there a few years ago. I was accompanying a a tour that was traveling by steamboat, uh, which is a great way to see the uh, uh, to see see the the area. And oh, it is to to arrive at Pittsburgh Landing from the water side is really an, an experience. I agree. I, I've done Delta Queen uh, yes. before, and uh, the last time I was at uh, the park. Uh, Doing doing some research. Actually, I was working uh, on a project with History Channel. Um, I'm eating catfish at, at at the local restaurant, the, the Catfish Hotel, which is adjacent to the park. And here comes the Delta Queen chugging uh, chugging up the river uh, at dusk. It's the only way to travel. I have to. Say. It is. It's, it's, it's just fabulous. And listeners, if you have never gone on a uh, Civil War cruise on the Delta Queen, and if you are incredibly wealthy. I highly recommend that you uh, uh, you do that, or write a book and get yourself hired as a uh, a guide on one of the tours. That's that's even better if you can do that. I prefer the latter. Yes, it's it's it's, it's much more fun. It's it's, a, it's nice work if you can get it. As it say. is great work if you can get it. Uh, and some of uh, some of the Civil War historians who who do a lot of this are, are very uh, you know, well known names. Richard McMurray does a lot of these. Yes, he, he, he's a, I've, I've done one with him actually, and he, he's he was on the one that I that I did as well. He, he may do. He may actually live on the boat now. I'm not sure. I, he, you know, he might as well. <laughs> and he, and if you know Richard, or if you've ever had the pleasure of working with him, or yeah. or being in a seminar with him, he is the most affable human being, uh, and is a, a a very very good scholar. He is he is both of those. And listeners, if you haven't heard. Uh, Richard's show here on, on Civil War Talk Radio. When we're done here, click on the archives and uh, go back and listen. I think it was in 2006 he, he was on, and uh, he is, is truly an entertaining and knowledgeable knowledgeable guy. Well, one time I was there, and I remember uh, we, we had several guides, and I just said, you guys do this. I'm going to the library because it was my only chance to use it, and I spent a couple hours there. Now, as you point out, it's not open to the public, 
but if you have a reason to be there, if you're working on a project, if you have some kind of credentials or just some kind of deep enough interest that you're not going to wander in and look at stuff, uh, I found the staff extremely helpful and welcoming. Yeah. And yeah, they are. Just found a, a, just a, a treasure load of materials, uh, in my case, for the Army of the Ohio, but for any of the armies that were at, at Trilo. Uh, really, it's a great, a great resource. So this is where this manuscript sat in in this library. Yes. And uh, you and and Tim Smith have rescued it. As, as we said in the first segment, you edited it, uh, made a few cosmetic changes, produced some really wonderful maps. Uh, you said there were thirty maps in the book. Yes. Yes, and they are they are very nice, very clear maps. Uh, you can you can see what's going on. They relate to the text at hand. They're very very helpful. I, I tried very diligently to create maps that not only accompany the text, but if you go to the map at the point that it occurs and you're reading along, it's almost like an hour-by-hour hour, uh, run of all the action. And then I did some theater maps as well. I did one on Corinth. And I did one on uh, Fort Henry, one on Fort Donaldson, and a, and a theater map to get people to understand where things are in, and, in and relation to other other places, how the rivers run, what are the significant uh, towns at the time, and more particularly the railroads. Because without understanding the railroads and the water courses, uh, it is impossible to explain Shiloh and even the entire Western Campaign of 1862 and and what it led to in 1863 with Vicksburg. Well, as you point out, Shiloh today is in the middle of nowhere because river transportation is no longer the central mode of transportation in that part of the country. Yes. Uh, but but the river is why the battle is fought where it is. That's right. And without maps like the ones you provide, as you say, there's no way you can understand it. But But these maps do a very good job of of setting the stage, of showing how things are. Now, in your introduction, you talk about the, the historiography of the battle, that, that there have been a series of different interpretations. Um, yes. Uh, who, who wrote about this battle, and what, what did they have to say? Well, you've got... the, the There are different schools um, at, at Shiloh. And this holds true for most campaigns and battles in the Civil War. You're going to have the first group that's by participants, uh, the so-called Reed School. Uh, D.W. Reed was the uh, first uh, historian, uh, superintendent, you know, the, the, the primary official at, at Shiloh. And it, his, his work was used to actually create the, the, the basis for the monumentation. He did the original uh, post-war maps. And in some form or another, he actually dominated all of the history of Shiloh for about six decades. And then you have Wiley Sword and his magnificent book. You've got uh, James McDonough in his wonderful book. You've got Larry Daniel. And, and 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 all all fine authors all taking different points. Uh, you know, Charlie Rowland wrote wrote about it. But you've got you've got issues that all concern what happened. 
The question is, is how do you interpret those? That's what historians do. That's, that's why we have a livelihood. Can you look at it and discern anything that someone else has missed, or do you just believe that there is something more important that has been sort of sitting back? Well, here comes Cunningham uh, many years before these modern historians. And when you take Cunningham out of context, he does not sit where one might think with a 40-year-old dusty dissertation that no one's cared about. That's true. But he is. it is not a 1960s dissertation from the from that time, from that dominant thought process during the centennial. He is, if anything, a revisionist, and he's 40 years ahead of his time. He lessens the impact of the hornet's nest. He uh, describes the geography as being as as great a a character in this massive canvas uh, equal to Grant and Sherman, Buell, Albert Sidney Johnson, P.G.T. Beauregard. Uh, the geography is the key. When when you read about the fighting going toward Dill Branch, for example, if you don't know anything about the geography, you think, okay, well, they found a creek. Boy, that thing's pretty tough to get across. You go to Shiloh and you see it. And even though it was partially flooded at the time, today it's a good 90-foot drop. Yeah, that's a big, it's a big gully. It's a big gully. And one of the things that I've worked on, um, and Cunningham touches on this, and when I started working on Dill Branch, uh, I didn't know that Cunningham existed, uh, is on the night of, of April 6th, you have two timber-clad gunboats. You have the Tyler and the Lexington that are firing from late afternoon and through the night into Dill Branch, supporting Union forces. And, you know, the first day, uh, it was it went very, very bad for the Union. And the second day, it went very bad for the Confederates. But that interim is almost neglected. It, it may get a page, it, it, it may get a paragraph, uh, but no more. Well, what's the big deal other than a lot of racket? Well, that's that's the way I've always read about that. That you have, say, the first day the the Confederates sweep the battlefield, the second day the Union counterattacks, and meanwhile through the night the two gunboats just keep firing to irritate the rebels and keep them awake all night. Yes. Uh, there's more to it than that. There is much more to it than that. Um, when you look at Dill Branch, Dill Branch is is a V. It is almost vertical, maybe even looking at a, at, a, at an upside-down bracket. Flat bottom, ferns in the bottom, small branch and vertical walls. At the back end of this ravine is a prominence, and the gunboats, uh, Lieutenant Commander Gwynn of the Tyler figured out what was going on. He could not see what he was firing at. It's indirect fire. Mm-hmm. He has eight-inch guns firing spherical rounds, uh, and He's firing into it, and he's walking those rounds up and down, trying to see what he can do. 
there have been naval fuses found, and there are no naval fuses operated by either army or ordnance. It's it's strictly gunboats found in the front yard of Shiloh Church. That's twelve thousand feet away. I say it's the other end of the battlefield. It's the other end of the battlefield. So how in the world did a gunboat firing from the Tennessee River? Uh, how was it able to get fragmentation rounds uh, 12,000 feet away when it's far beyond the range? And what he was doing is he's hitting, he's aiming at this prominence, and he, he acts like, it acts like a chute. It sends the shells high up into the air, turning them into a mortar, their fragmentation, and when it blows, it's like the uh, first stage of a, of a booster rocket. And then at its apex, and it explodes, it's like an aerial shotgun from an 8-inch shell. And so that's why you get these fragments so far away. He was a very, very smart man. He was very audacious. So he's, he's shooting down into this from the mouth of the creek. He's shooting straight into shooting straight it, up, up the very, creek very again. slightly, very slight elevation. Until it hits the, the, the wall at the far end and deflects the shell upward. That's it. It's and about it, a 25 it, to 30 degree uh, deflection. Wow. And now, so the Union soldiers get a tremendous comforting night, although loud, and they are able to um, really, it, it's comforting for them. They they see that they are protected. The Confederates do not get many wounded and killed from this bombardment, but it is an unholy racket, and they are they are afraid of these big guns. Uh, there's okay. no doubt about it. You you get it in in the writing. That would be unnerving. Just to it would be unnerving, them. and you were sleep deprived, and mm-hmm. they were already low on rations. Um, they were pretty miserable, and then it began to rain. So it, it was uh, really uh, a night in hell for these men. Let's go back to the first day. Um, this show has a, a theme song. A, a fellow with a sort of Irish uh, tinged voice singing a ballad about Shiloh that is wildly inaccurate in all its details. Yeah, uh, but it not, sounds good. But it sounds good. I, I <laughs> inherited that music. I didn't pick it for the show, but I've never bothered to ask anyone to change it. It works just fine. Um, but there were no Union batteries strongly fortified by the riverside. Uh, nor not on the man, first day. Not on the first day. Nor did the Confederates win the battle. But, but leaving those things aside, the uh, on the first day when the Confederates attack, one of the things that's always struck me about this battle, when you look at what ifs of the Civil War, uh, some of the what ifs are, are silly. The AK-47 hypothetical, for example, mm-hmm. uh, is, is just being silly uh, if Lee had repeating weapons like that. But at Shiloh, there's something that could have easily been changed. It might have made a lot of difference. The Confederate Army deploys its three corps in three long parallel lines. Yes. Uh, one in front, one in the middle, and a reserve behind them. Yes. And it looks great on paper. It looks like a huge Napoleonic sort of formation. But as soon as they go forward, the commander of the first line now is tasked with commanding troops from one end of the battlefield to the other, which he can't do. And the second line has the same problem, and the two lines get intermingled. And a much more rational uh, 
deployment would have put one on the right and one on the left instead of one in front and one in back. Without a doubt. Would would that have changed the outcome of the battle in your judgment? I think so, certainly. Um, the the battle plan was created by PGT Beauregard. E- even though Albert Sidney Johnston was the overall Confederate commander, uh, Johnston really allowed Beauregard vast leeway. And then after Johnston's death, uh, Beauregard took over. Um, if you look at the initial Confederate lines, as you say, they're beautiful. They're nicely ordered. Uh, when I look at that, the first thing that pops into my mind is Jomini. Yes, very, very, very geometric. It is very geometric. It is very Napoleonic. Uh, you know, the the hardest lesson I think that was to be learned by both sides was that technology had surpassed tactics by 50 years. Ah, well, those are fighting words. I'm going to challenge you on that. (laughs) But we're going to take a break because I hear the music. When we come back, we'll argue about technology in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. Second day at Shiloh, did Buell's army save Grant, or was Grant going to win the battle anyway? Those two argued about it for the rest of their lives. We can argue some here on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Gary D. Joyner, co-editor, along with Tim Smith, of Shiloh and the Western Campaign of 1862, a new book by O. Edward Cunningham, written decades ago, but just discovered, revised, and edited by these two fine scholars and uh, soon to be released. An excellent uh, and fascinating perspective on Shiloh. When we left off, we were talking about uh, tactics and the evolution of tactics at Shiloh, the Confederate deployment in long parallel lines rather than in compact masses right and left as one of the problems. And uh, Gary Joyner, our guest today, was a mentioning the the imbalance between tactics and technology that had developed by the Civil War. Uh, this is a theory uh, many of us have read uh, for many years that, that, that uh, and I hope I'm not putting words in, in your mouth, uh, Gary, as I say this, but the idea that the, uh, the rifled musket the, with its accurate range, three or four or five hundred yards, 
uh, made the frontal assault impractical. Now, instead of a smooth bore 100-yard killing zone, you've got to cross 300 yards, mm-hmm. and no one can attack through that. Uh, I have, have not been persuaded by that. I'd, I'd read it many times as well. But it strikes me the argument doesn't work, especially at Shiloh, and I'll say at Shiloh for two main reasons. One is that so many of the units had the smoothbore weapon, the same as their Napoleonic forebears had. Uh, they didn't have the modern rifles in everybody's hands yet. And secondly, you've only got a 100-yard view shed just about anywhere you go at Shiloh. There's nowhere you can use the long range of the new weapon because it's such closed forested terrain. That is very, very true. So and in, in in my view, it, it is not the the technology that makes a difference that, that they might as well have fought they did fight it with smooth bores largely and they could have had all smooth bores and you would have had the same outcome i i would agree with you on the issue of long arms especially at shallow because it's so early i mean this is the first massive truly massive battle mm-hmm. uh, in in the war what i'm thinking about really is more in the realm of artillery. Ah, okay. Um, How does that differ from from Napoleonic artillery? Well, certainly you have a lot of of 12-pound Napoleons. You've got 12- and 6-pound howitzers as well, but you also have larger ordnance pieces that can uh, fling shells much further, and you also have uh, grape and canister and, and, and that type of thing. Later on uh, in the war, of course, you're going to to see those exponential increases in rifle muskets, some breech loaders, carbines, that yes. kind of thing. But in, in my idea is is uh, looking at artillery specifically. It is it is an anachronism in that there was no uh, comparative change in infantry tactics to allow for the uh, rapid change in artillery. That's an interesting point, because in Napoleon's time, in 1815, a 12-pounder is is a heavy artillery piece. Yes. And by the Civil War, that's a standard artillery piece. Right. So you you really do have more firepower on the battlefield than artillery. Yes, and in spite of the fact that you have very limited view sheds at Shiloh, and it is, it, you know, you, you, you have this heavily forested area, uh, cut by various types of roads, uh, you have fields in which the battle is really, really fought and won, mm-hmm. in many cases. Um, and the peach orchard, of course. Uh, but you, you have a very limited view shed. Very limited. Uh, look at Fraley Field. Look at Shea Field. Look at Cavalry Field, and, uh, and on down the line. Um, it's it's going to be uh, artillery and, and movement more than uh, you and your regiment standing shoulder to shoulder, um, getting ready to shock uh, and uh, and hopefully knock down um, the opponent across the way from you. Uh, it's fought that way. But it is; it doesn't play out completely that way. Um, it, it, it's amazing to me the lessons that could have been learned at various battles, and it took some very hard fighting 
uh, repetitive fighting uh, across many battlefields to learn those lessons, and some of them, indeed, if if they were ever done before two years. Well, while I was speaking of artillery, I was going to ask you this earlier, so I'll ask now. Uh, the hornet's nest is a famous spot on the battlefield, the, the yes. centerpiece of the battlefield. And as you noted, uh, Cunningham downplays it significantly. Yes, he does. Which is, is a different interpretation. Uh, and somebody might say, well, that, that's okay, that's a different interpretation, but it, this is kind of the minutia of the battlefield. It's really not that important. Take it another step. Uh, Cunningham has, has revised the estimate of how many artillery pieces the Confederates lined up to shoot into the hornet's nest. Yes. And here, uh, you can make the argument even more strongly, uh, for goodness sake, why does it matter if there were 51 or 62? <laughs> why does it matter? Okay. Uh, viable questions all. Well, the first thing is, the, the hornet's nest and the sunken road, uh, tremendously iconic features in the history of, of the Battle of Shiloh largely come about because of Superintendent Reed, who was in the hornet's nest ah. and did not see other actions happening. And yes, it was certainly important, but was it as important? Uh, Ruggles' uh, total number of, of guns uh, as, as listed uh, in the 60s does not account for attrition. And uh, Cunningham is the first one to go back and look at the list of ordnance pieces and say, well, you know, maybe maybe there weren't that many there, and and maybe that's why you don't have the the degree of effect that it looks like you should have had. Like, what were these people doing? Were they just bad gunners or what? Well, it's still a large mass of artillery. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But uh, if you look at the percentage reduction, uh, it would have a, a, a telling effect. Geography. It's, it's geography uh, to me. Uh, certainly Albert Sidney Johnston's death uh, plays a major point, uh, and Cunningham uh, talks about that, change in leadership and, and that type of thing. But it's geography. It's sort of like uh, the 92 presidential campaign. It's the economy, stupid. Uh, it's geography. If you if your attack has its schwerpunkt or its heavy point at the wrong place, if you if you don't aim correctly, or you don't succeed in turning the enemy's major flank, driving them into the river, uh, or up against one of the big creeks, then what what good is it? You're just going to push them back. At Shiloh, you, if you're a Confederate uh, commander or a planner, you have an opportunity to drive the Union Army up to the riverbank. And there, although there were certainly, and, and you, you, I'm sure you'll jump in on this, and, and I hope you do. Um, are there sufficient boats to retrieve them and take them to the other bank? When Buell gets there, so uh, the, the timeliness of it, everything, all of that plays into it. So, so regardless of the 
uh, of who's commanding or, or even what the weapons are if, if you don't read the ground properly uh, and structure your attack to account for that. It's not going to succeed. That's exactly right. Okay. Now, it, I was struck by your map of uh, the hornet's nest as it gets toward the, the end of the first day. The Confederates surround it, not the way we say surround, meaning metaphorically, but literally. Yes. They are 360 degrees around it. And, of course, the obvious question is, well, aren't they in a lot of danger of friendly fire if they shoot into that thing? Uh, aren't, aren't the projectiles going to come out the other side? I certainly think so. Uh, do we have any record of that kind of thing happening? Well, I guess how would anyone know? Who how would anybody know? Because everything is, is flying through the air, whizzing, screaming, shrieking. Uh, if you're hit by a, a friendly 58 caliber Mini ball as opposed to a hostile fifty eight caliber mini ball does it it's do about all the same isn't it <laughs> does, does it do your your uh ego any better to know that you were killed by one over the other no I guess that makes sense so uh so the the first day ends with the union troops driven back to the banks of the Tennessee but not into the river not no. not totally disorganized no that that's where the the federal artillery comes into place because they they had the advantage of being able to um, compact it, put put it into a um, a, a really well fortified fortified area at the at the, uh, Pittsburgh Landing. One brigade of Buell's army, I think it's Ammon's brigade, actually gets ashore on the first night and yes. joins the fighting, and. The rest of, uh, not all of Buell's army, three divisions of the, the his six divisions arrive during the night and the next morning and join the fighting the next day. There's uh, a continued rivalry through the rest of the war. Buell's soldiers claim they saved Grant's bacon, that, that he would have lost the battle had they not arrived. Yeah. Uh, that's not Grant's view of it. He, oh, no. He thinks he's got things in hand. How do you see it? I think, as in most things, the answer lies in the middle. Um, Grant was pretty hard pressed. Um, Sherman, look at look at Sherman's position as well. Um, Buell comes in with with thousands of troops, with all these supplies. Uh, you've you've you talk about the cavalry arriving. You hate. Any good infantryman would hate that, but uh, you know, Buell, Buell comes in, and uh, I, I have to, I have to fall down on Buell's side to a degree. But I, they, they were not wiped out, and they would not have been wiped out, I don't believe. But Buell certainly did add to the mix beautifully, I might add. One of the things that, that uh, in, in all for the regiment, one of my arguments is that regimental cohesion was. Was a primary, uh, a a major motivating factor for the soldiers. Yes, and you really see that at the second day at Shiloh when when Nelson's men from Buell's army show up. Uh, there there are Grant's fugitives, the refugees who've lost their cohesion, who are huddled by the riverbank. Yep, and it doesn't bother Buell's men. They they believe their individual regiments are the best. Each one's the best in the service. So just because there's a horde of frightened refugees, instead of catching the panic from them and becoming disheartened, they just go, oh, you losers, get out of our way. We're here now. Yes. And they just march right in. Yep. 
I agree with that. It's quite a scene. Uh, it, it, it must have been a a very poignant view from the heights near um, Pittsburgh Landing, looking at these thousands of troops pouring in, uh, fresh, ready to go, and people who have had a horrendous previous day not even trying to explain to them. Uh, it, 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 to me, that's one of the great word portraits that uh, Cunningham shows. Well, it is. Uh, unfortunately, the music suggests we're out of time already. I'm always eager to talk about this battle and campaign. But I will tell our listeners once again, the book's author is the late O. Edward Cunningham, edited by our guest today, Gary D. Joyner, and Tim Smith, a former guest on the show. Its title is Shiloh and the Western Campaign of 1862. Uh, you don't want to miss this. It is a remarkable find of a 40-year-old dissertation that reads like it was written today and uh, really gives an interesting perspective on Shiloh. Gary, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jerry. We're, we're going to be at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago on the 29th, uh, unveiling the book. And you can go to www.virtualbooksigning.net and see how it works. Oh, that will be fun. Definitely do, Come the and see it. do the virtual book signing. If you're listening to this weeks later on the archive, go call the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop and order a copy or get it from the publisher. And uh, listeners, you'll be glad you did. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.